Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Purity is a wonderful thing. When something is pure, it exists in its essential nature. It's undefiled, unblemished, and uncontaminated. We are serious about some forms of purity in American society. A whole department of the federal government, the Food and Drug Administration, is charged with monitoring and protecting the purity of what we eat. But their standards of purity are not what we might hope. Here are the federal guidelines for purity for a few familiar products. Apple butter. If the mold count is 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects per 100 grams, the FDA will pull it from the shelves. Otherwise, it goes right on your English muffin. <laughs> Coffee beans. Let me start by saying, I don't care what they say. I'm still going to drink coffee. But coffee beans will get withdrawn from the market if an average of 10% or more are insect infested, or if there is one live insect in each of two or more immediate containers. That means the FDA just doesn't like people getting too many insects with their coffee beans. One container is okay, but more than that, we draw the line. Mushrooms. Mushrooms can't be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. Fig Newtons. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste in each of two or more subsamples, the FDA ruthlessly tosses the whole batch. Apparently other insect body parts are tolerable, but we don't want to be staring at too many insect heads. Finally hot dogs. You don't want to know about it. <laughs> but what that teaches us is if anything is really good, we long for it to exist in its pure form, like oxygen without exhaust fumes and like snow unmixed with slush. This morning, we're going to see what purity and worship and service looks like and the challenges that that can present to us. We'll be spending almost the entirety of our time in verse 3. Look at verse 1 with me. In six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. We're going to see in our account today that we have a worker, a witness, and a worshiper. We have Martha the worker, Lazarus as a witness of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and Mary the worshiper. In our Christian life, we are called to be all three of those things in our service to Christ. We learn from the other Gospels that the house they were meeting at was owned by a man named Simon. Mark 14 tells us that he was a leper, was past tense. Jesus at one point has obviously healed him, and now they are meeting in his home. The supper was presumably a joint celebration for the raising of Lazarus and a thank you supper from Simon. 
And as such, it was a brave thing for the friends of Jesus to do. We remember from last week that the Sanhedrin had given an order that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should report it to the authorities. To fail to do so would more or less make them accessories to what they considered his crime. We're then simply told that Martha served. This is the same Martha who a few months earlier had said, Lord, tell my sister to get in here in the kitchen and give me a hand. To which Jesus replied, Martha, you are troubled about many things, but only one thing is important, but you're striving and stressing and troubled about all sorts of things. You know, guys, the same can be true of us. How often we are very busy, but not very blessed. What do I mean? Well, sometimes people come to our home just to spend time with us, but we make fancy desserts, vacuum the carpets, wash the windows, mow the grass, and by the time they get there, we are wore out and have a headache, and we really just want them to leave as soon as possible. Jesus said, one thing I desired, Martha, is sitting at my feet, and Mary has chosen the better thing. But now Martha understands this, and she is now serving in the right order. She now has the proper balance in her life. Now, one thing I find fascinating about Lazarus is that he is one of the most famous people in all of the Bible. And yet, we don't have one single word recorded of anything that he ever said. Now, I would never want to minimize the importance of speaking about our faith. But at the same time, we must never minimize the power of a changed life. Case in point, Lazarus has been known for over 2,000 years as an example of Christ's resurrection power. And like Lazarus, there was a day when we too were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we could no more have lifted ourselves out of that dead life than Lazarus could have raised himself from the dead. Although Lazarus never speaks a single word, he is still a major witness in the scripture. Jesus would be doing the speaking and the teaching and the sharing but Lazarus would just sit there sort of as a proof of the pudding. Because witnessing is not only what you say, more importantly, it's what you are. Jesus did not commission us to go into all the world and witness. He said, you shall be my witnesses. In other words, this is as if Jesus said, like Lazarus, you also at one time were dead. Your countenance was drab. You reeked of the grave, and you were bound in all kinds of different stuff. But I freed you. And now you should be my witnesses because people will look at the difference in your life, and from that, they will be amazed. So try and imagine this scene. The guests were surely reclining, leaning on one elbow with their heads towards a low U-shaped table, as that is how they would eat in the Middle East. As a side note, pictures that depict the Last Supper always have all 12 of them seated at one big, long table, sort of mugging for the camera. But that is not how it was. Sorry, Leonardo da Vinci. Look at verse 3 with me. 
Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. As Lisa had alluded to, it must be noted here that Luke records a very similar incident. The account of Mary anointing the Lord is also found in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. But it must not be confused with the account given in Luke chapter 7, where a former prostitute anointed Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee. This is a completely different event, and that is clear because that took place in Galilee, not in Bethany. It featured a woman who was a prostitute and not Mary, and it occurred much earlier in Christ's life and not during the Passion Week. It was also at an event at the house of a Pharisee, and not as we read this morning of Simon the leper. But what stuck out in everyone's mind concerning this supper, however, was not the presence of Lazarus so much, or even because of the bravery of Christ's friends. What the disciples remembered of this dinner and wrote about long afterwards was this one act of Mary's devotion. We are told she took about a pint of pure nard, which is an expensive perfume, and poured it out on Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. Think about that. John is writing this over 50 years later, and he still cannot get over the extravagance of that gift. Now, a pound is a Roman measure equivalent to about 12 ounces by today's standards. So this was a large amount of perfume. And nard was a fragrant oil extracted from the root of a plant that were found in the mountains of northern India. So perfume made from that nard was very costly because of the great distance in which it had to be imported. We are told Mary's nard was also pure in quality, making it even more valuable. We are next told that she anointed Jesus with the, and then wiped his feet with her hair. But it is at the dinner table and not the temple that Mary performs this scandalous act of devotion. Now, according to that culture, Mary would not have been seated at the table like Lazarus, who reclined at the table with the others. That would have seemed inappropriate in that culture. No, her place would have been to serve the food. But we read in our text that it says that Martha was serving. So we know that Lazarus was reclining and Martha was serving, but where's Mary? Well, she was serving too, but in a different and more extravagant way. When she came to the place of Jesus at his feet, she took the place of a slave. Then she undid her hair, which was something Jewish women never did in public, and she humbled herself at his feet. Now, of course, we're going to see next week that she was misunderstood and criticized. But that is usually what happens when someone gives his or her best to the Lord. Please also know that Mary's hair, which the Bible says is a woman's glory, becomes the rag of Christ. She is like the man who would lay down his cloak in the mud for a woman to walk over it. So Mary takes her glory and lays it down. Now really, in a way, Mary is even lower than a servant because a servant would have used a towel. Mary used that which symbolized her glory as a woman. So in a sense, she cast her glory at the feet of Christ. 
Now, there is a boldness and an intimacy in this action that must have shocked those who are reclining at the table. There is a kind of nakedness in her devotion that scandalized everyone in the room except for Jesus. The Apostle Paul would later say, Whatever things I have counted gain for me, I consider it a loss compared to Christ, and I consider it as rubbish. Paul said he was considered to be the scum of the earth. And yet there was no person too small. There was no act too menial. There was no recompense too little that Paul could not do for the service of his king. And that's how we know that we are a good servant this morning. It is when there is no act too small, no person too trivial, no reward too minuscule to be the servant of God. Or as Gil Irwin says, you know what kind of servant you really are when how you react when people treat you like a servant. Now I'm sure that there were towels around there. She could have taken a towel and wiped his feet. But she is intent on taking away something from that worship experience. She is desirous upon taking upon her life the fragrance of Jesus. She wants her life to be marked by that time that she spent at the feet of Christ. Paul will let her say to the Colossians, and he will describe you and I as Christians, as the fragrance of Christ. And it is our fragrance that we have on our lives because of our knowledge of him. And that word knowledge in the Greek there is used of a knowledge that comes only by experience. Why would I bring that up? That tells me that there is a fragrance in our lives, not merely by knowing a lot of facts about God, but by knowing him in a way that can only be had by spending quality time at his feet. It is time spent in morning worship and in prayer and in reading of the word of God that leaves a fragrance upon my life that other people can then discern for the remainder of the day. It is that time that makes a difference in our lives that would make us different than we would otherwise be had we not done that. Now sometimes some of us can look at our lives and we can say as a Christian and say, well, candidly, my life stinks. And so what is the solution to remedying that? There is only one solution, and that is time spent at his feet. And when we do that, like Mary, we will see that that will be a blessing to Jesus. It is also a blessing to Mary, now she is covered in that fragrance. But also notice what it says at the end. The aroma filled the house. That tells us it was also a blessing to the other people. How different a household is if even one Christian in that house will consistently spend time at the feet of the Lord every day. So what I want us to see first is that following Christ means abandoning your pride. And this is a very important first. You can't really go any further until you come to grips with what that means. Mary has done several disgraceful things here in that culture. 
First of all, she was washing and anointing Jesus' feet. In that dusty, nasty, hot climate, dealing with people's feet was such a low and disgusting task that in most municipalities, it was illegal to even make your slaves do that labor. It was too demeaning to ask even a slave to do such a thing. On top of that, Mary has untied her hair. As I've said, for a woman to untie her hair and let it down in a public setting was also considered a disgrace. For her to pull it down and untie it was, again, something women in that culture just didn't do and don't do today also. It was a disgrace. Then not to use a towel, but to take her very hair and with her hair anoint and clean Jesus' feet was even more demeaning and even more lowly. What is Mary's do? What is, what is she doing? Here's what she's saying. She's looking at Jesus and saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I know who you are, and I know you deserve my honor above everything else. And there is no act of devotion that is beneath my dignity. I don't care what anyone thinks. I know who you are. I must honor you with everything I have. She has absolutely surrendered her life in obedience to Christ. Let's just be honest this morning. The hardest thing to do very often is to just give in. Because that means trusting our shepherd even when we don't know what he's doing. I read about a woman visiting a shepherd family in the mountain of North Wales. When she was up there, she saw what a shepherd had to do. Every so often, the shepherd would take all his sheep and throw them into a vat of antiseptic. Otherwise, the parasites would get them. She watched this guy come to, him, come to his sheep, who he loved very much, pick them up, and throw them into the vat. And as they were screaming and kicking and would try to get up over the side, he would snap at them and snarl at them and push them back down into the vat. And then he would keep them, nose, ears, and eyes, underneath that antiseptic until they were completely covered and it was all over. Then he let them out. She sat there and she said, I know what they feel like. I have a shepherd also who seems sometimes to do things like that to me. She said, how I wish I could have expressed to them the reason behind why the shepherd was doing that. But she said, I realized they would never understand. The knowledge was too wonderful for them. It was too high for them. And as the psalm says, they cannot attain to it. And you know what? They had to trust. Why? They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand what the shepherd was doing. But they knew that he was their shepherd. There is no place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, I know what my Redeemer is up to. No, instead he says, I know whom I have believed. In our life, if we say, I'll obey the shepherd if, if this and this happens, I'll obey if. If there are any ifs in our life, if there are any conditions on our obedience, then we are now the master and God is the servant. And in reality, we haven't actually obeyed at all. But a life of obedience to the Lord is the absolute best way to live. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain that which he cannot lose. I always want to be straight with you. There can be consequences if you're willing to give everything up for the cause of Christ. Things that you say, if I do that, I might not make it in business. If I do that, I'm probably going to lose this relationship. What did Esther say? When she realized the obedient thing that she had to do, that she needed to go to the king, she needed to ask for the freedom of her people, and she knew that if the king didn't give her free passage, she could be put to death. What did she say? If I perish, I perish. Now what Jesus is saying is, look at the most precious thing that you have in your life. Is there anything too valuable for you to give to me? Now, there are a lot of interesting little parables and statements where Jesus says effectively the same thing. But to me, my favorite is Matthew 13, 44. It's so simple. Let me read it to you. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. We've often heard sermons on this passage, and the question would be, have you bought the pearl? What they meant was simply was, the man who looks and sees the treasure in the field, and then he goes with joy and sells everything that he has to buy that field. Now why? Because he knows that what he is getting away from, stripping away all of his wealth, is still a tremendous deal. He knows there is nothing in his possession that's even worth the wrapping paper of this great treasure. He says, I can get this treasure, and all I need is to pay everything that I own? Well, really, that's nothing. Actually, that's not that hard to see. What if you actually found a well that had an oil well in it, and you knew the oil would give you millions and millions of dollars, but the field was for sale for every single penny that you had? You'd say, well, I'd do it. You'd gladly pay the whole thing. The idea of buying the pearl is, have you ever actually seen its surpassing worth? If somebody was following you around daily, could they tell that you have bought that pearl? I want to ask you something. A lot of people say they are Christians. But do we act like we have the most precious thing in the world in our possession? That there is nothing in our lives worth Jesus? Now, we won't say this out loud usually, but when we hear our heart says something like, well, as a Christian, I know I can't do that. As a Christian, I really shouldn't be doing that. As a Christian, I really ought to be doing that. Oh, why is it so hard to be a Christian? If we think like that, then we do not understand the treasure that we have. We're walking around not realizing that all that stuff, what that stuff looks like in comparison to the incredible thing that we have to pay, really it's nothing. It's nothing. It says, with joy he goes and sells everything he has. He gets rid of everything he owns. He lets it go and go and buys that field. So I guess the question is, what does it mean then to totally commit this morning? 
It's like the morning the chicken came upon the pig who had been crying. What's wrong? asked the chicken. The pig bemoaned, I just heard the farmer say he's going to have eggs and bacon for breakfast. The chicken said, so what's the problem? The pig through his tears said, well, for you, that's just an offering. But for me, that's total commitment. That's us, Calvary Chapel. We have to die to ourselves if we are going to be totally committed. It means to say, I will commit myself this day to obey absolutely. Now, it doesn't mean absolute obedience because we're smart. We know we won't be able to absolutely all the time obey, but it is a commitment to obey absolutely. What does that look like? The way to do it is look at every area of your life and ask just two questions. Number one, Am I willing to do what Christ commands here? And number two, am I willing to thank God for whatever happens here? It's that second one that really gets us. Some of us say, well, wait a minute, because the first one has to do with actual behavior. In many cases, there are places where we know we're doing something wrong, and that in and of itself is hard enough. But commitment is not just avoiding wrongdoing. Do you hear that? It's true. But even if you avoid wrongdoing, that's only the negative side of commitment. Commitment is actually a very positive thing. And the positive thing is I see the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If for some reason it seems like to follow him is costing me something here and costing me something there, what is that compared to what I have? What is that compared to what is awaiting me in my future? What is it? I have bought the pearl. Have you bought the pearl? It can cost you comfort and security. You see, commitment is not only the voluntary limiting of your choices. Commitment is a promise that means that you will eliminate all the other options. And you choose one particular option, and you bind that to yourself. Commitment is the opposite of unlimited choice. What you really do is you say, like Mary's sacrifice, I will make myself vulnerable and give all that I have. The word commitment always means that, even in the most trivial of situations. Commitment always means you put all your weight on something, so if what you're putting on your weight fails, you die. That's what commitment means. Commitment means you're always vulnerable. If you lean forward, if you move forward, to commit to the door means you lean on the door, and if someone opens the door, you fall down. But if, on the other hand, you're not really committed to the door, you may have a little bit on your, of your weight on the door, but you're actually just hedging your bets, that's not really commitment. Commitment means you must become vulnerable. Now, here's where we have the head-on collision with the gospel. Jesus Christ cannot be really known apart from absolute commitment. He can't be known any other way. You can't just sample Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. He can't be sampled. Jesus Christ cannot be known on a money-back guaranteed trial. It can't be done. He can only be really known through absolute and total commitment. 
Now, before I go any further, let me just make one thing completely clear. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ can only be known through absolute obedience. We know the gospel says you're saved not by your perfect record, but because of the grace of Jesus and what he has done for us. He substituted for us. He died for us. His record becomes our record when we believe in him. Therefore, you're not saved by your obedience. I don't mean to say that. When you're a Christian, you do not absolutely obey. But that doesn't mean that we cannot absolutely commit. To absolutely commit means the willingness to obey absolutely. To finish up this morning, let me try to paint a picture of this that may make it more clear for us. What if you were going to adopt a child and you went to an orphanage and you were looking at a 10 or 11 year old child and you come up to one child and you say, if I adopt you, will you obey me all the time? The first child says, nope, I'm not going to be doing that. Then you go to another child and you say to the second child, will you obey me all of the time? The second child, second child says, yes, absolutely, I will always obey. He says, okay, you can come home with me. Now, that man is a fool if he really thinks that second child is going to always obey him. He's a fool if he thinks that, but he doesn't think that. He even knows, now get this, that the first child might be day in and day out better at obedience. Isn't that right? In reality, the first child may be a, a more well-trained child. The first child could have more self-control. The first child could be a whole lot better of a child and obey him, but he wants the second child. Why? Because though he may be obedient most of the time, the first child has refused to abdicate the throne of his life. The first child is really withholding from him. He is saying, I reserve the right to make up my mind whether or not I'm going to obey you. Even though I would come and live with you, I will make up my own terms about obedience. I hold the right to ultimately determine when I obey and when I don't. I refuse to abdicate. I hold on to my right of self-determination. I'm going to stay in control. The first child might actually day in and day out, if you're keeping records and looking at the many days the child does the good things and bad things, actually have a better record than the second child. But the second child is given an absolute commitment. The second child says, I may be wrong, I may be bad. I'll tell you what, though, I am committed to absolutely obeying you. I give myself completely over to you. That, my friends, is commitment. And just like that, Jesus Christ can't be known really any other way. You commit. You put all your weight upon him. You make yourself absolutely vulnerable. That's what commitment is. And you really can't know him any other way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that it is your righteousness and not ours that has secured heaven for us. But we do long to match our present condition with our eternal position. So in our everyday lives, make us want to do good. Until that happens, at least make us want to want to do good. You said, if we love you, obey my commandments. Let our lives be marked by that kind of loving obedience. We ask in your name. Amen.